welcome back to the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. And today we've got another round of COVID updates from Bianca Nogrady, our in-house COVID expert and blogger. Bianca, welcome back. Things aren't looking great out there with Melbourne in lockdown for six weeks and cases climbing in Sydney. Can you give us the latest? Yes, so obviously things in Melbourne are kind of going up and down like a seesaw, but generally trending spectacularly in the up direction. So um, I think the uh, latest in Sydney is also not looking good. So the Crossroads Hotel cluster um, at Kazula is now at 28 cases. Um, Interestingly, I think around half of those are actually contacts of people who were at the hotel, including a child and a teenager. Um, so it's definitely a growing cluster and I, there's sort of concerns that um, obviously because being as its name suggests at a crossroads I think there are even um, you know visitors to the hotel from as far afield as Queensland who've since returned into state and so there's concerns that that cluster might have actually spread across state boundaries um, so in response to this particular incident and I suspect also just a growing concern about community transmission in New South Wales Um, There's now new restrictions on indoor venues. So there's a limit on group bookings to a maximum of 10 people. Um, Venues are limited to a maximum of 300 people in total. And um, all venues, I think above a certain size, have to have what's called a COVID-19 hygiene marshal, who's uh, essentially to make sure that they're adhering to physical distancing and adhering to the kind of uh, limits on, um, on the number of people they can have. All venues also have to register details preferably electronically of every patron and they also have to lodge a COVID safety plan with Services New South Wales Um, and there was a press conference today where uh, the Premier Gladys Berejiklian said that the state is now on high alert because there's concern that community transmission has possibly been happening for longer than uh, than this cluster would indicate, uh, particularly because New South Wales obviously shares a border with Victoria, there's a lot of travel between the two so there's, uh, there's every chance that cases from Victoria have already been in and out of New South Wales and that there's community transmission going on um, at, a, I guess, an undetected level until now. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But certainly I think the mood in New South Wales right now is very um, nervous. Yeah, I mean, I just think back to when we sat down and, you know, recorded the COVID update podcast maybe a week and a half, two weeks ago now, and we were talking about uh, that trend that was happening in Victoria at the time. Of course, now they're in lockdown and it's severely worse. But at the same time, we're saying, well, what's going to happen in two weeks after the school holidays happen? And now we are in that second week of school holidays um, and we're already starting to see the cases rise here, uh, which is concerning, as you said, Bianca. And, I mean, I even heard that the line at the Crossroads Hotel to get tested was nine hours this morning, Uh, so uh, quite significant. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, we do have, there are other respiratory clinics around the state. In fact, I guess it'd be interesting to know whether there's been a a surge in the number of people presenting for testing um, elsewhere in the state, apart from just around Kazula, but um, I I haven't seen the figures on that. So if we turn our attention uh, back to Melbourne, uh, where are they at right now? So um, Victoria had 177 new cases to 8pm last night, being Monday, but already since then another 270 have been recorded. So, um, it you know, there was that kind of chance of, oh, is this, is this going down? But no, it's going back up again. Um, and I guess even more concerning is the fact they now have 26 patients in intensive care and 21 of whom are critically ill and on ventilators. So just really, really hoping that we don't see 
um, an associated rise in COVID-19 deaths. But unfortunately, I guess the indicators are likely that, that this is going to happen or is possibly inevitable that when we get a rise in cases that there will also be a rise in deaths. Yeah, that's not uh, looking too positive at the moment, Bianca. It's, um, it's an alarming time. It's looking grim, that's for sure. Um, yeah, it's definitely not looking good uh, down there in Melbourne. Um, and I mean, here in Sydney, we're about to move to our new office um, over in Redfern, and I'm just wondering if we're even going to be able to go in if things tip any further and, you know, Sydney goes the way of Melbourne in, in terms of lockdown. But I guess we'll have to see in the coming weeks. Um, but, you know, one thing that we should feel pleased about is that we've managed to control this pandemic so far in Australia, and we've got a lot more information about the disease and about treatments and what works and what doesn't work in terms of interventions. Um, so we're, you know, a lot better place to handle it now than we were at the, right at the start. Yeah, it, I mean, we have a little bit more going for us. I think our sort of understanding of the risk factors for the disease and the risk factors for severe disease, I think we know a lot more about um, about those kind of risk factors, so the comorbidities and the age. Um, and um, on the treatment front, uh, we do now have in Australia, the TGA has just approved uh, remdesivir, which is the antiviral um, that was manufactured by Gilead. So that's just been given provisional approval for use in Australia as a treatment for COVID-19. Um, it's provisional because it's um, been granted based only on preliminary clinical data. Obviously, it's pretty early in this pandemic, even though it feels like it's been going on forever. So, you know, there isn't necessarily the um, um, the full amount of data that's normally required for a full um, for, for approval of a drug uh, in Australia. And so the provisional approval has a six year time limit based on that until more of that clinical data on the safety and efficacy can be provided. Um, so the drugs indicated for use in adult, adults and adolescent patients hospitalised with severe COVID-19 symptoms. Uh, and, and, you know, there's still so much that we don't know really about who's likely to benefit most from this drug. And from recollection, I think the study, when the NIH finally published the full data from its study, it did suggest that there's a bit of a sweet spot of response where patients who are on ventilators don't necessarily benefit. Patients who aren't receiving any kind of respiratory support don't appear to benefit. And so it's kind of this group of patients in the middle who are is sort of sick but not too sick. Um, and Gilead has actually released more data, still by press release, which is so frustrating because it just deprives uh, everybody of the opportunity to really interrogate the data and interrogate the methods in the study. But anyway, they uh, they released this at um, the, actually the 23rd International AIDS Conference, which has just happened recently. So their analysis found um, they were looking at 397 patients hospitalised with severe COVID-19. They saw a 62% reduction in the risk of mortality, didn't specify whether that was statistically significant, didn't specify whether those patients were on ventilators or not. Um, and there was um, a, a higher rate of recovery by day 14 in patients treated with remdesivir compared to those who received standard care. And I guess also importantly, the study did show that there were similar outcomes across different racial and ethnic patient subgroups, which is particularly important with COVID-19 because there does seem to be an association between non-white ethnicity and a higher risk of COVID-19, a higher risk of um, severe disease. And I think that it's actually even independent of associated comorbidities. So it does suggest that there might be some kind of an um, interaction with ethnicity. So being able to demonstrate that this drug is 
if you know it is, is I guess re- effective in the same method way across a range of ethnicities and uh, and subgroups is really really important to uh, to explore. So we'll start seeing I guess remdesivir being moved uh, being used outside clinical trials, but we still don't have the guidelines on that yet. So I'm guessing that the uh, national COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, which is our kind of, you know, this national body that's doing these constantly updated living guidelines on COVID-19. So I'm guessing that they will start putting out some guidelines on how to use remdesivir outside the clinical trial setting soon. And something that I saw that was a lighthearted update on the blog today is that COVID has reduced the amount of carbon we're pumping into the atmosphere, which, you know, has to be one of the few silver linings of this pandemic. It is, it really is. And given that, you know, COVID-19, yes, it's a catastrophe, but there's still climate change to look forward to. Um, But yes, this uh, study has estimated that um, the the pandemic has actually led to the single biggest drop in anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions in human history. So uh, this is very good news. It's still only a drop of about 4.6%. Um, so it's not a lot given how much we, you know, we basically need to get our carbon carbon emissions down to uh, less than zero. So we've got a way to go, but at least shows that we can achieve drops when we put our mind to it. Um, unfortunately, the cost of that has been a 4.2% drop in GDP, global GDP. Um, so, for example, they, this is a study published in PLOS One, and they were modelling the potential impact of the pandemic. They estimated that global consumption was down by around $3.8 trillion US, uh, and that was associated with the loss of 147 million full-time equivalent jobs. Um, and some sectors, unsurprisingly, the aviation sector has been hit hardest, and there was um, some forecast that global revenue uh, for air transport are predicted to drop more than 44% below the levels from last year. So it's, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's the kind of good news where it's like, yes, it's great, but wouldn't it be nice if we could achieve this without pandemic and mass death and, uh, you know, associated economic devastation, which might I add, if we'd actually got our act together 20 years ago, we would be sailing quite nicely along. But thanks, conservative governments, we're, uh, we're not. But uh, speaking of conservative governments, I did have a chuckle, and I suspect quite a few people did, um, watching Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt trying to put a face mask on. And I encourage you, we've got a link on the blog, I encourage you to check it out if you need a bit of levity today, because it's clearly it's not as straightforward as one might think. So he has a little bit of a um, an issue getting his face mask on, and maybe I took some small amount of delight in watching that quite a few times. Um, yeah, that's quite hilarious, but, you know, I think we've all been there. <laughs> um, it can be a little bit cumbersome. Um, and sorry to bring up some more depressing news, but there's there's a few more studies um, that you talked about on the blog, Bianca, that I think are quite important for us to, to just touch on um, some things in, in JAMA about um, patients with COVID-19 and uh, the symptoms that they're reporting. Yeah, so this is also really something that's becoming apparent now that we've had, I guess, the equivalent of long-term survivors of COVID-19, which is that the effects of this infection uh, appear to be quite long-lasting. And that's even in patients with what we'd consider relatively mild mild disease. Uh, So we're sort of hearing reports of uh, people, and again, on social media who've had mild disease, who weren't hospitalised, saying that they're still experiencing symptoms for months afterwards. But this was actually a study uh, published in JAMA in 143 patients who were hospitalised with COVID-19, and they were followed up for a, um, 
a mean of a couple of months after the onset of symptoms. And it found that only one in 10, roughly one in 10 of these patients were completely free of COVID-19 symptoms um, in, you know, two months after the onset of symptoms. So 90, well, it was actually 88% reported some kind of symptoms, persistent symptoms. So about a third had about one to two symptoms. So we're talking about um, the most common ones being fatigue, shortness of breath, joint pain and chest pain. But more than half of these patients had three or more symptoms and 44% of them reported that they had a worse quality of life. So, you know, 60 days after the onset of symptoms is quite a long time. And I guess if you think about a bad flu, you're probably still going to be having a persistent cough for a while. But, um, you know, to be experiencing fatigue and shortness of breath and joint pain and chest pain at such high frequency um, is, is a little concerning. And that does point to this being... Um, you know, not an infection that you shrug off lightly, I guess. Um, And then another study, again, uh, you know, this was a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at the actual kind of fatality rates in um, adults with, I guess, different uh, severities of disease. Um, And we should qualify this saying that the author said that the the evidence of most of these studies was pretty low quality, but... Believe it, you know that that uh, taken into account, they found that around one in ten adults admitted to hospital with COVID nineteen will die, um, and so this is all cause mortality. Um, when they looked at patients who were admitted to intensive care, the mortality rate was around thirty four percent, so around one in three. Um, among individuals who ended up on mechanical ventilation, it was eighty three percent mortality rate, so incredibly high. Um, and then not, not too far behind that, if uh, patients who developed acute respiratory distress syndrome, about three quarters of them ended up dying. So, I mean, yeah, very high mortality rates. But again, with the qualifier that these studies were low quality, um, there was a huge range of patient populations in the study. And the authors said there was also quite high risk of bias. I'm not sure how that necessarily presents in these sort of studies, but yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't paint a, paint a kind of nice picture of survival and outcomes from this disease. Yeah, and I've seen it um, already spoken about on Twitter. Um, people colloquially calling it uh, COVID lungs. Uh, so I think that that's a concerning trend. That I mean, no doubt we're going to hear more about as time goes on, and we see more of these patients who survive uh, the illness um, with some of those side effects. Um, But finally, Bianca, we're starting to see uh, some rather strange rules or responses that are popping up from cities as they start to reopen or relax restrictions um, while still keeping the population safe. I mean, I've seen some very strange ones online, uh, basically encouraging people how to casually date during the pandemic uh, or engage in sexual activity with strangers. Um, To say it's very entertaining is an understatement. Uh, What is happening in Japan? Yes, so Japan has cautiously reopened theme parks, but if you go on the roller coasters, you are not allowed to scream, which to my mind kind of defeats the purpose of going on a roller coaster because you really want to get on there and have a good old Liza Minnelli cabaret style holler. But no, apparently they've decided that if you are going to go on a roller coaster, you have to keep your screams and your COVID-laden breath to yourself. So this is their attempt to um, reduce the likelihood that you'll kind of inadvertently let off this kind of spume of, uh, of COVID-laden air particles that will then impact all of the people behind you, also with their mouths open screaming. So that's Japan's solution to making their roller coasters slightly more COVID-friendly or COVID-safe. Whether or not it'll work is a whole other question, but um, I guess that would be interesting to see if we have a patient who's 
who uh, contract COVID-19 directly from a roller coaster. Stay tuned. I mean, there's just so many things coming out of this pandemic uh, that are, you know, who'd have thought nine months ago that we'd be here telling people that they can't scream on theme park rides. You've been listening to the Medical Republic podcast, a program for curious GPs. I'm Francine Crimmins, and you can contact me anytime with tips or just to say hi. I am francine at medicalrepublic.com.au or reach out on Twitter. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or iTunes or whichever podcatcher you prefer. Thanks for listening.